Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, the latest in the legal fallout over the fatal onset shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins last year. Plus, I'll talk with filmmaker Noah Baumbach about his new movie, White Noise. It's an adaptation of Don DeLillo's 1985 novel of the same name. The thing that's amazing about this book is that everything that just happened in the news somehow feels like the book has responded to it. But first, a show you might want to stream over the holiday weekend. The Hulu series This Fool centers on 30-year-old Julio Lopez. He lives with his mom in south-central Los Angeles and works at a non-profit that employs ex-gang members called Hugs Not Thugs. People from L.A. will know that Hugs Not Thugs is a loving send-up of a real nonprofit here called Homeboy Industries, founded by Jesuit priest Gregory Boyle. Comedy ensues when Julio's cousin Luis, with whom he has a not-so-great history, is released from prison and becomes Julio's new client at work. This Fool was co-created by comedian Chris Estrada, who also stars in it. Here's a clip with Michael Imperioli, who plays the Father Greg-type character, Minister Payne. People love buying cupcakes from ex-gang members. The only nonprofit that sells more sweets than us are the Girl Scouts. If the Girl Scouts ever start getting face tattoos, we're fucked. I spoke with Chris Estrada about this fool before the news came out that the show had been renewed for a second season. I was inspired by Homeboy Industries and other nonprofits in LA like Covenant House that I just thought to myself, this is really cool. Like you're catching these people in a transitional part of their lives. And also the one thing I realized, I go, how do you make a show about gang members, but it not be about gang members? Because I grew up with gang members in my family. And the thing I know about them is that society views them one way, which is they're not wrong, but I view them one way because I'm they're in my family. You know, I understand that the same person that could have done something bad to someone else is also very loving to me. And I've also seen that part just through my own family members. I've seen people try to transition out of gang life or try to reinstate themselves back into society after being in prison for a few years. And a lot of it was this is a rich work setting, you know, because what it allows us, it allows us to see these people who have maybe gang members who you viewed on TV before, but are robbing people or shooting people. But this time they're not. They're changing their lives. And the comedy is centered around the relationship between me and my cousin interrupting these well-meaning people who who are so so much more emotionally mature than me most of the time, or and my cousin, who were just kind of bickering the whole time. Hey, why'd you bounce? No, that cupcake shit is embarrassing, right? Stuff my mom used to do. What's next? You want me to knit you a sweater or what? It's called art therapy. And that's on your schedule for 2.30 today. And actually, it's really fun. What did you learn in the first season about things that worked and things that you think are still really rich for exploring and maybe directions that you're interested in going to? You know, 
the things I learned that really worked was comedy first. You know, I think people really react to the comedy of the show, what makes the show funny. And then also what I think is to keep worth exploring is the more like darker psyches of the characters. You know, that that's what I enjoyed the most out of first season, the slightly when the show goes a little dark. But also I think what I really like exploring in the show is working class life. What's it like when you don't have enough money to fix your roof that you're constantly putting a tarp over it? Or you don't necessarily recycle for the good of the, <laughs> you recycle because you, you collect a bunch of cans so you can get 40 bucks, 50 bucks in like two months. You know, um, kind of class dynamics I really enjoy. And I think that's that's worth exploring. The tarp is so specific. When you fly into LAX and it's, you fly over Inglewood, some parts of South LA, and literally like yeah. every sixth home has a blue, and they're all blue, have a, has a blue tarp <laughs> on the roof. And when you start with a blue tarp, I think in the very first scene of the very first episode, it says to me, and I think it says to a lot of people, this is part of LA that exists and you don't see it. Yeah, that's right. I think that's what I really, I, I was born and raised here in LA. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and Inglewood. You know, my parents are working class. My mom's a janitor. My dad was a busboy. So to me, a lot of that which just comes from being working class. And I love like, um, I love working class life. I mean, I, it's a hard life, but I, uh, it's rich. There's a lot going on there. I think working class people sometimes get put in a box and they feel like background people. Oftentimes, you know, there's this invisibility to the working class that I just wanted to I wanted to see on camera. And also, I, I just wouldn't know what, what else to write about. I mean, I'm clearly not working class anymore, but for most of my life I was. And I just, I, I really wouldn't know what to write about. I don't, I mean, I could probably write about upper middle class people or, or anybody who's rich or has some amount of wealth. You know, they're human beings and they have the same needs and wants. A lot of us in different economic statuses do, but it doesn't, I, I just... I, that's not the life I, I know. Right. I want to ask you, yeah. before you started working on this show, you were doing stand-up, and you were not yeah. what you would call a early starter in stand-up. I think you were almost 30, right, when you when yeah. you started doing stand-up. So I want to hear a little bit about that transition and how you were interested in comedy and what it meant to you. Um, performing is one thing, but what comedy meant to you personally. Yeah, I started a little late in life. I was I, I was 30. I'm 38 now. I was working at warehouses. I I only had one office job ever that I got fired from. Most of my jobs were either kind of, you know, blue collar or retail jobs and stuff of that manner. So I just really enjoyed comedy. I was always a little too cowardly to pursue it or I just didn't think I could do it, you know. So I think finally when I got fed up, I was I had got fired from a job and I said, I think I'm just going to try stand-up because I, I really enjoyed it. And I also wanted to write. I really liked writing. And, like, I just tried stand-up. I went to two open mics in one night, and I thought this was fun. Like, I, I, I'm sure I bombed. I, I'm, I'm actually pretty <laughs> sure I like, I'm bombed. But, like, I, I, I was fine. It, it's kind of like when you get in a fight and you're so scared to get into a fight. But when you finally do, you go, I survived that. <laughs> like, you know, I'm okay, you know, like. Getting punched sucks, but it wasn't the end of the world. Was there something that you were doing in stand-up that sparked the idea for this fool? Was there something 
a story that you wanted to tell in a broader canvas. How would you describe the relationship between what you're doing stand-up and the birth of the show? You know, I co-created the show with three comedians, Matt Ingebrigtsen, Jake Weissman, and Pat Bishop, who they were comedians in the L.A. scene who actually had a show before I did that they created and show ran called Corporate on Comedy Central. And those guys, years ago, they hit me up out of the blue. I was working at a warehouse unloading trucks, still doing stand-up at night, but Jake Weissman sent me a text and said, hey, we like your stand-up. Would you ever consider working on something with us? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, I didn't want to work at a warehouse forever. And uh, I met with those guys, and a lot of it came from, I think, what they saw in me. Because when I met with them, I... They said, so what are some of your ideas? And some of the ideas I had weren't necessarily what the show was. It was, maybe it was close to it thematically, but it was, they said, those are cool ideas, but what about your life? Or the way you talk about it in stand-up, like it's really interesting to us and you do it in a way that it makes us understand that world, even though we don't know it. And you do it in this weird kind of abstract way. So what about that? And I said, all right, cool. So you know, I just kind of explored like what I wanted to see and what I was inspired by. And you, you know what it was? I was also really, there's a film called Killer of Sheep by this black filmmaker named Charles Burnett. Man, I ain't pole. Look, I, I give away things to the Salvation Army. You can't give away nothing to the Salvation Army if you pole. I mean, we may not have a damn thing sometimes. You want to see somebody that's pole? Mm-hmm. Now you go around and look at Walters. And this film, Killer of Sheep, was about this guy who worked at a sheep killing factory, like a meat factory. And he was a, you know, he was a father. He was a husband, working class guy. And it was really cool to see just a film about a guy who had existential dread and depression in a working class community like Watts, you know. So I think uh, that really informed the show for me, where I was like, how do I, I go? I feel like I'm that guy. I grew up having existential dread and. That movie was not a comedy, but it had moments of comedy in it. There was an interview on the uh, Las Culturistas podcast Mm -hmm. with the creators of the HBO series Los Espookies. And they were talking about how they would never say, this is a Latinx queer show and you have to watch it. Even though the show is that, their goal is to make a silly comedy. And yet shows that are not about rich or middle-class white people become these referendums on the certain group of people that they're about, which not only creates a lot of pressure for that show, but also kind of pigeonholes it as this statement rather than just a show. I'm curious about your your take on that. Yeah, you know, it often becomes what some people call the burden of representation, where people look at it like this is a show that, and I'll be quite honest to you, representation is an abstract term to me. Because I don't, I know what it means, but I, at the same time, it kind of has this vague meaning that means nothing, you know, because my life as a working class Latino growing up in LA with Mexican immigrant parents is very different from say a Latino from Miami who is an expat Venezuelan who's upper middle class, you know? I mean, our, our lives, they're, they're incredibly different from each other, you know? Maybe the fact that we share a language and some some cultural, you know, some cultural tabs are the same, but yeah, I think oftentimes you fall into the burden of representation. And what we wanted to do with this show was explore themes instead of having a message. I don't think it's a show that's trying to convince anybody of of some group's humanity. I, w- I was also really, my father-in-law, he, he's a Unitarian, 
And he told me, I, I didn't know about Unitarian. This is, this is why we made the, uh, the Michael Imperioli character uh, a Unitarian minister, because they're so, they're the left-wing aspect to a lot of Unitarians, you know? This is the character who runs the nonprofit, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. But he told me some, my father-in-law told me something that I thought was really interesting a few years ago. He said, one time we had a gay man come to our church and talk to us. He had written a book about his life. And I think he, he lived through, you know, the gay rights movement and a lot of things. And he asked him, he goes, so what's going to be your message to our congregation or, you know, and he goes, I don't have a message. And then he goes, really? He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm just here to explain my life and convey themes of my life to you, but I'm not here to convince you of anything that, that often is not going to work. And that really stood out to me. And I just said, yeah, that, that seems about right. And also, I think a lot of it was with this show is even though clearly it's about a Latino, a working class Latino guy who lives at home with his family. I think it's really we try to look at it through the lens of class that I thought is a great unifier. Chris, this was such a great chat. I really hope that Hulu says yes and lets you have another season because I'm eager to see where this show goes. But congratulations. Yeah, thank you, John. That was comedian Chris Estrada, the star and co-creator of This Fool. And good news, the show has been renewed for another season. You can watch all of season one now on Hulu. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Noah Baumbach's movies are deeply personal and often inspired by events from his own life. The writer-director's credits include The Squid and the Whale, Margot at the Wedding, Francis Ha, and Marriage Story. For the first time, Baumbach has made a movie based on someone else's work. In this case, it's an adaptation of Don DeLillo's 1985 novel, White Noise. Starring Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig, the movie tells the story of a family dealing not only with the ordinary challenges of life, but also what DeLillo called an airborne toxic event, a chemical spill of deadly gases. I spoke with Bombeck at the Middleburg Film Festival in Virginia last month, where White Noise played, and I started off asking him about a couple of scenes with moments of almost literal white noise, when several people are talking all at once and it starts to sound like human static. I've always been interested in, I think in most of my movies, I've been interested in characters who say things that are not necessarily what they're saying, and how language is both connects us and also distances us. And also, we may not know what we're saying. Uh, and, and with this movie, I was able to take that to another, maybe more visceral level with the sound design. They're all talking essentially at once, but there's also story and information buried in there. We worked on this a lot of like when we want to hear what and who we're hearing and when it's just music. It's just 
a, a certain kind of, like you say, family static. I want to ask you about the cadence of the dialogue. It is distinct and to my ears, beautiful. And there's a meter to it that is unusual. Um, I don't know how you would describe it, but how did you settle on on that style? Because Don DeLillo is a writer and he's not a talker really, mm -hmm. but how do you settle on that? The way that the actors are saying what are almost 99%, I assume, Don DeLillo's words. Yeah, it's, I find Don DeLillo's dialogue very funny. And it's both related, I feel, to how I've, what I've done in my previous movies, which is my own original dialogue. But there's, there's some distinct differences. I mean, I think I write very, a very kind of stylized dialogue, but in the playing of it, it feels often quite naturalistic. I'm often asked, you know, how much was improvisation? I choose to take it as a compliment that they think it felt naturalistic. But that's working with the actors to get the rhythm to, of, of, of how I've written and structured, you know, the sequences. With DeLillo, it's different. It's never going to sound naturalistic. You're embracing, in a sense, the artificial quality of it, which I find beautiful as well. But with that, finding that it's exactly how we talk. I, there, there's a, I think, uh, is it Lev Grossman has a wonderful quote about the dialogue in White Noise of how it's, I'm going to mangle it, but it's essentially saying that in, in doing something that's not how we speak, it's exactly how we speak. I mean, that's the, the essence of it. But I, I do find that. And I also feel like it's also this great way we parrot what we hear around us and how the kids are a great example in the book. The kids essentially sound like a radio that right. has been left on. And how we hear something either in conversation. I mean, we, we, we feel it all the time. I hear it all the time in Hollywood. Like there'll be some phrase that I'll hear one person say, and then I hear another person, and now everybody's using it. You know, 100% is one that's yes. become, I feel everybody uses now. And, but I, I find it interesting in my, again, in movies where I write, I originate the dialogue, I, I pick up on those things. But I, DeLillo uses it in a way that really is a kind of poetry, I think. And so I, wanted to embrace that and do it in a cinematic way. Do it, you know, I was thinking of people like Robert Altman who did a lot of overlapping dialogue and, you know, would have scenes where you felt like, oh, I'm not even sure I heard any of that. But you you still know what you need to know. And it's, and there is real, I, it, I mean, in those movies, there's real beauty in that. I came across a 1991 New York Times interview with... Uh, Don DeLillo, conducted by Vince Passaro. I'm going to read a little bit from it because I think it might get into what this book is about or what Don thinks it's about. I'm quoting this story now. During our discussion, when the first side of my tape runs out and I turn it over and begin the second, he asked me with a sly look, are you sure it's working? I immediately began fiddling with the machine, trying to assure myself it is. You're making me paranoid, I say, perhaps the most appropriate statement one can make to DeLillo. Ah, you're in the world of white noise now, he says cheerfully. There's a connection between the advances that are made in technology and the sense of primitive fear people develop in response to it. In the face of technology, everything becomes a little atavistic. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. I don't know if you share that feeling in adapting his book. Well, absolutely. And, it, and I mean, what's amazing about 
rereading White Noise now or seeing the movie now is how the internet only makes more true everything that he's responding to about television, radio. And, and it's also what I found very interesting was White Noise at the time was a, in that Delilah way, it, it, it exists both in our reality and somewhere above our reality. And it has a somewhat futuristic vibe to it for 1984, 85. But of course, now making the movie, it's a period piece about the 80s with old technology. But I'm still maintaining that sort of futuristic, slightly hovering above reality sense of the 80s. So it, it by design, has a different feeling, I think. And of course, with all the technology we have now and how much it, it runs our lives, uh, it's just as true and also only more true. But he's also writing 40 years ago now, almost, a pandemic movie, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Like, how do we react when the world is shutting down and by s simply going outside to put gas in our car, we could be killing ourselves? Yes, and how do we know how to react to a real danger when we only know danger from television uh, movies I mean, we all felt that when the pandemic happened, everybody was rewatching Contagion to try to understand something, you know. And 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 I thought there's that sequence in the car where the kids say uh, they're they're responding to other people in other cars, and they're saying, "Well, these people seem like they're laughing, like they're not worried at all," and then these people seem frightened, and they're trying to and. Their father says, well, you know, why do we care about what's happened, what people are doing in other cars? And they say, I want to know how scared I should be. And I thought that sequence, it's in the book, but it said everything about sort of how we, uh, I mean, how I individually and how I think we collectively responded to the pandemic, which was we were all looking out to other people to tell us how how bad it was. Is it okay? Yes. And we wanted to know it was okay. And you have all the headlines in the New York Times on whatever given day telling you it's all going to be okay or it's all going to hell. And they did alternated it enough, actually enough during the actual day, if you were looking online, that you could, uh, you know, you, you, you could have every, every feeling at once. There also seems to be something in Delilah's book that you also pick up on, which is the idea, which are words that he didn't have, alternative facts and fake news. Right. Like Heinrich, you know, his dad and the radio are saying the weather isn't doing this. And he sees what he sees, but he believes what he hears. Right. So people at many different times in the story don't believe what they see because they're listening to alternative facts or fake news. Right. Well, it, I mean, that's another thing that the book picks up on, which is amazing and only more true now. But yeah, well, there's Murray has that line, family is the cradle of the world's misinformation, which is a brilliant, beautiful line. And I saw family in that way as a microcosm for our culture that I mean, you could just as easily say America is the cradle of the world's misinformation. And we see it on the the, the familial level and we see it with the kids and everything. And, and I, of course, we know that this is only happening in much grander ways, you know, in, in our country. I mean, By the way, we're talking a day after Alex Jones was forced to pay almost a billion dollars for saying that 
Sandy Hook didn't happen. Right. It, it was staged for gun control. So it is very proximate right now as we're speaking. I mean, the thing that's amazing about this book is that everything that just happened in the news somehow feels like the book has responded to. I mean, I was, re I was rereading the book coincidentally as the pandemic happened or as, I mean, as it happened, you know, to us, of course it was already happening. We just didn't want it to, we didn't, we didn't realize it until whatever, uh, March 6th or 7th or 8th or 9th or 10th. And, uh, and I was reading it thinking, I can't believe how much this is about, you know, the Trump era now thing. And I was reading Greta, you got to hear this. And then finally, and then she started to reread it. And we were like reading passages to each other. And then the pandemic happened. And it was like, I can't, this is only more, <laughs> it's just, it's just still true. And, uh, you know, as you point out, yeah, the Alex, I mean, it's, 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 it just continues to be true. That was Noah Baumbach, writer and director of White Noise. The film is in theaters starting Friday, November 25th. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. Just because it is Thanksgiving week does not mean that there has not been some serious show business news, John. And as we discussed Monday morning here on Morning Edition, the Walt Disney Company fired its CEO, Bob Chapek, and replaced him with former Disney head, Bob Iger. And there was also some news late last week about the investigation into Alec Baldwin's fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the Rust set. Remind us of where things stand there. Well, I'll start by saying that Baldwin killed Hutchins on the New Mexico set of Rust more than a year ago, and there have not been any criminal charges filed so far. District Attorney Mary Carmack always said two months ago that she was considering indictments of as many as four people, including Baldwin, who has denied any wrongdoing. Other possible criminal targets include armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed and Assistant Director Dave Halls. More recently, the DA received the final police report into the incident, and on Friday, her office replied to a KPCC public records request and sent us the copy, a copy of the 551-page Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office report. And what did that report say? Well, it said a lot, but broadly it described a disorganized movie set with such a rush to finish the movie on time that corners were cut, particularly in regards to safety. One crew member told investigators that armor Gutierrez-Reed was, quote, not qualified or certified, unquote, to be handling firearms. And there were many live bullets on the set, the report said, which violates the most basic safety rules uh, for a movie production. And as you might recall, half a dozen members of the film's camera crew resigned the morning of the fatal shooting. And in a letter to the film's producers describing why he and his colleagues were quitting, that was included in the sheriff's report, camera assistant Lane Looper said there was no safety meetings after earlier on onset gun discharges, and that scenes involving gunfights were, quote, often played fast and loose. And I should add, even Joel Souza, the film's director, who was injured by the bullet that killed Hutchins, suggested
suggested that to save time, some standalone safety meetings should be replaced with actor briefings while the performers were putting on their wardrobe and makeup to, quote, push this stuff to move faster. That's what Sousa said, according to the report. I see. And I understand in this report there were new details about what was on Alec Baldwin's mobile phone, right? Yeah, there for a variety of reasons, it took investigators several months to get Baldwin's phone and then more months to catalog its contents. And in one text message, two months after he killed Hutchins, Baldwin asked a sheriff's investigator when the inquiry would conclude because it was, quote, putting a strain on his work, unquote which certainly sounds a little bit heartless, given that Hutchins was dead. And there's also a text that Baldwin sent to his assistant just two days after the fatal shooting, urging him to, quote, delete my archive, unquote. Baldwin's lawyer said that was a reference to Baldwin's Twitter account. All right. Well, thank you so much for following this story for us. And it's got, of course, wider implications than just what happened that day in New Mexico. So let's switch topics to the nominations for the Independent Spirit Awards that came out this week. What stood out to you, John? Uh, Well, this movie got the most nominations. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now, you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. I just get such a smile listening to that. That's everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, A great movie. It led with eight nominations right behind it. Was a movie not quite as fun, uh, Tar, that had seven nominations. And interestingly, the Spirit Awards now present awards in lead and supporting categories, not actor or actress. All genders are together. So... That's an interesting step, and maybe the Academy Awards will follow not anytime soon, I don't think. And everything, everywhere, all at once is now streaming, so it's... uh... Yeah, you can watch it and watch it again. I love that movie. I've been speaking on this Thanksgiving morning with KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter, John Horn. Thank you so much. Thanks to you, and enjoy your meal. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.